Right. It's a very good thing to often re-examine our views, to go back to the root, the foundation, the core of any particular doctrine or belief. In doing so, if we notice anything amiss, we seek to have the Word of God guide us in reorienting ourselves in regard to the fundamental nature of what we're considering. This is what the word radical deals with. To be radical doesn't mean you're crazy or you've gone mad. It means you go back to the root of something. You go to the very foundation and see what needs to be changed. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to get radical, if you will, with the office of pastor and really consider what it is that is the office of pastor. What's the fundamental role of this office and what's the fundamental purpose of this office? And this can be helpful for a number of reasons. Number one, to help those aspiring to the office of pastor to understand what they are getting themselves into. For there are many today that are in the office of pastor that have not understood the basic nature of the office. And we'll address that. Number two, to have proper ecclesiology. In other words, this means to have a proper view of the doctrine of the church. For if we have a flawed view of the officers of the church, in this case the pastors, then we'll undoubtedly have a flawed view of the church in general. Number three, to know what to look for when selecting a pastor or an elder. Uh, Those terms are synonymous in Scripture, and so as I'll be using them interchangeably today. And finally, a reason to consider the office of pastor is to provide a corrective against the modern evangelical system. All right, now before I begin, I want to remind you of a message that I preached about two months ago on Matthew 23, 8, where Jesus says, Be not called rabbi, for you're all brothers, you have one master, the Christ. Now in that passage, I argued, in that message, I argued that Jesus attacked the system of unhealthy religious authority that the Pharisees had set up. It was a system which kept the people at the mercy of the religious leaders and promulgated the view that the religious leaders were a special class that alone were responsible for knowing and applying God's word. Now, I noted that the same system that Jesus denounced of clerical tyranny was alive and well in pre-Reformation Europe. And many heirs of the Reformation, especially the Puritans and even more so the Separatists, that would be the pilgrims, men like William Bradford and William Brewster who came over from England, they were in Holland and came to America and Plymouth Plantation. They rejected that system and placed great emphasis on the priesthood of all believers. Nevertheless, they did not reject the office of pastor, but they did radically alter the practice of it. And so if Jesus demolished the false system of religious leadership that the Pharisees had set up, what shall be built in its place? Now I want to answer that question today by answering two basic questions. Number one, what is the fundamental role of the pastor, of a pastor, and what is the reason for pastors? Why did God give this office to the church? They're interrelated, so we'll kind of break this down. The first part will be sort of doctrine. The second part will be more of application of this topic. And we'll be looking at, for this, we'll be looking at several verses. I had Bobby read 1 Timothy 4. We'll be spending some time there, so the verses will be up on the screen if you don't want to turn back and forth in your Bible. So let's begin with the role of the pastor. The Bible highlights three main areas of responsibility for pastors. And they are these, teaching, setting an example, and prayer. These three things are the core of what a pastor is to be doing. Now, there are other things that could be discussed, right? But I I submit that those would be largely applications of these three essential duties of the pastor. So if we talk about 
counseling or we talk about uh, anything else, I don't think those are the essential nature, but rather applications of what a pastor is to be doing. So when I look through Scripture, I just see again and again these three things over and over and over again. But the most basic of these is teaching. And I'll make my case from the Scripture, I believe. The other two really serve as a support for that main function of the pastor. And there could be a distinction between preaching and teaching. There's a slight nuance there, but for today, I'm just using those terms interchangeably. So let's consider the first element. We're going to go through these, and we're going to spend most of our time on the first element. Let's consider the foundation of a pastor's duty as teaching. It's the essential aspect, teaching and preaching the Word of of God. This is his main job. Remember we talked about the the sine qua non of the church, the most basic element of the church being the gospel. Well, the most basic element of the pastor's role is preaching and teaching the word of God. Let's have a couple quotes here from, this one's from Ligonier. It says, feeding the Lord's people a steady diet of truth through the faithful proclamation of his word is the pastor's chief job. Chief job, that's his main job. Jeremy Rennie says, if elders shepherd Jesus' sheep, then their most basic task is to feed the souls of church members from the Scripture. So if we misunderstand this point, as many men entering into ministry have, we'll be bound to err when it comes to other aspects of the office of pastor. A man may enter pastoral ministry because he wants to be a leader, he wants to help people, he wants to serve the church, These could be all reasons he enters. However, if a man considering the office of pastor does not ask himself this question, then he's probably entering for the wrong reason. And the question is this, am I prepared to be given primarily and wholeheartedly to preaching and teaching the word of God? Preaching to the lost, preaching to seekers, preaching to new converts, preaching to backsliders, preaching to mature, strong saints, Preaching, 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 preaching. I've been amazed at how some pastors who supposedly are called to the ministry of the word are not at all interested in discussing the content of their sermons. It's almost as if they see their preaching as a necessary byproduct of being the pastor and not the core part that they're called to and that they enjoy most. But that's the main role of the pastor. If a man is not called to preach the word of God, then he ought not be an elder in the church. If the beat of his heart is not preach, teach, preach, teach, preach, teach, then he ought not pursue the office. It would be like a man pursuing a career in theater as an actor. He loves getting dressed up. He loves how the theater brings so many people together. He loves how the show involves so many aspects, the lighting, the music, the program. He loves all these things, but you know what? He doesn't love acting. He can do it decently well, but it's not what consumes his energy and attention. Why is this man wasting his time pursuing a career in the theater if he doesn't feel that he's called to that? The man called to acting loves acting. He'll do it for fun. He'll be immersed in practicing it. And so a man called to be a pastor is called to preach and teach the word of God. It's what he's called to. It's what burns within him. This is why Charles Spurgeon recommended that before a man be given to preaching and teaching in the church, he give himself to preaching and teaching outside of the church, open-air preaching. Spurgeon said this, quote, One of the earliest things that a minister should do when he leaves college and settles in a country town or village is to begin open-air speaking. And I agree with this advice. 
Such a practice will prevent many men from entering ministry because they will realize that preaching and teaching God's word is not the main thing that they are called to. If a man is not called to preach and teach, then he's not called to the office of pastor. A man called to preach and teach, however, can preach anywhere, anytime, to anyone. This is, of course, what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, to defend this assertion that preaching and teaching is the main role of the pastor, I want to look at the portion of the confession that Bobby read, and the next paragraph, one sentence from that, and then provide the biblical basis. So, Bobby read this was part of what Bobby read. The 1689 Confession of Faith says this, The work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in his churches in the ministry of the word and prayer with watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him. The confession states that the work of pastors may be summarized as the ministry of the word and prayer. The phrase with watching for their souls modifies that main service of Christ. So yes, we can say, well, there are other functions of a pastor watching over the flock and so on and so forth. But again, those are applications of the main role. The ministry of the word is the teaching and preaching from the word of God. Now, I'll address prayer momentarily, but for now, keep your attention focused on the ministry of the word. Okay. In the next paragraph, Bobby didn't read this, but in paragraph 11, the confession starts out by saying it is incumbent on the bishops or pastors, interchange, same term, of the churches to be instant in preaching the word by way of office. The word incumbent means that it is a most necessary part of their duty or responsibility. Just as it is incumbent on children to obey their parents because it is a necessary duty of a child, so it is incumbent on pastors to be instant in preaching the word. And the phrase by way of office demonstrates that the writers of the confessions saw this as the core aspect of the office of the pastor. So now I want to go to the scripture and defend this uh, claim that the writers of the confession make, made and that I'm making. And so let's look to the pastoral epistles, so-called because in them Paul gives directions to Timothy and Titus as it relates to pastoral ministry. In 2 Timothy 4, and I read part of this, Paul tells Timothy this, I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will, is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Bobby read this this morning. Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is what Paul told Timothy to be devoted to as a pastor. This preaching of the word is more than simply reading the text it is reproving, rebuking, exhorting. It's applying the text to the life of the church. And it is, as Joel Beakey says, preaching that aims to apply divine truth to the whole range of the believer's personal experience, including his relationships with family, 
the church, and the world around him. End quote. It is, not, it is more than just reading the text, it is applying it. And that's what Paul told Timothy to be devoted to. In Acts 20, Paul gives his charge to the Ephesian pastors, calling on them to have oversight by paying careful attention to themselves and to the flock. And he gives his example as a model. He says to them, For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul declared the whole counsel of God. He saw it as his job to teach and preach the word of God. Now, of course, the biblical qualifications for pastors highlight teaching the word of God as the role of the pastor. Titus 1.9 says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, there are many more passages we could cite, but for the sake of time, I want to reference just one more. It's in Hebrews 13, and the author identifies Christian leaders as those who declared the word of God to the people, again pointing to preaching, the proclamation of the word of God, as the core of pastoral leadership. Hebrews 13:7. Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's over and over again. Proclaim, preach, declare, speak the word of God. This is what a Christian leader, a Christian pastor is called to do. This is the essence and the foundation of the office. It's to declare the word of God to the people. The pastor is to be given to preaching and teaching. Now you'll notice another thing, even in this passage, it's a theme that comes up again and again and again when considering the role of pastor, and it is this, leading by example. Even here, the author of Hebrews says, they spoke the word of God to you, consider the, their way of life, and imitate their faith. Now, multiple passages cite the importance of the, of the pastor's example. The list of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are largely moral, right, dealing with how a man conducts his life. The exception would be the requirement to teach, which we've addressed. It is clear, then, that a pastor must set the example. He must practice what he preaches. The list of qualifications would be enough to prove this, but I was encouraged as I studied this more and looked at this in Scripture and saw the importance of the pastor's example in all these, these, these Scriptures that talk about the pastor's role to teach. It also talks about the pastor's example. And so I want to quickly walk through some of these and show you this connection. First, we have the, the most poignant passage is 1 Peter 5, where Peter gives uh, a great teaching on this. He says, So I exhort the elders or pastors among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In this text, the elders are to watch over the flock. How? Not by domineering and controlling everything, but by being examples to the flock. Okay? Being examples. Now, turning again to the pastoral epistles, going back to the text that Bobby read this morning, 1 Timothy 4, 11 and 12, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach... These things, there it is again, preach, proclaim, teach the word of God. This is your main duty, Timothy, teach the word of God. Command obedience to God's word, not your word. 
He goes on, though, and says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Preach, live. Live it out. Practice what you preach. The word being translated um, example here is the same word Paul uses when he tells Titus to be a model of good works. He tells Titus, he says, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model or example, it's the same Greek word, of good works. And in all your teaching, there it is again, example, teaching, teaching, example. In all your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Over and over again, the connection in Scripture is teaching and modeling, teaching and modeling. For one more nail in this coffin, look at the final two verses that we read this morning. Right? And we already had it here in 11 and 12, but again, Paul wraps up his, 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 this section here to Timothy and says this, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on what? On yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. There it is again. Pastor, watch yourself and your teaching, your conduct and your doctrine, your living and your preaching. This is what you are called to do. You need to focus on these two things. Everything else would be an application from that. This is the core of being a pastor. Now, prayer, and we'll come back in some of the application to, to touch on some of this stuff, but prayer is the third aspect, right? I said if I had to boil it down to the three main aspects, it would be prayer. And the main reason, perhaps, is because in Acts 6-4, this is the text that the writers of the Confession cited when they said that pastors are to be given to the ministry of the word in prayer, The apostle said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the writers of the confession recognized the summary of the ministry of the word in prayer as an apt description of the pastor's role. There is much more we could say about this, but for the sake of time, let me simply say this. Given the duties of preaching the word of God, In setting an example in Christian conduct, it is most necessary for a pastor to be given to prayer. And here's why. To preach and not practice is unacceptable. And a man needs to pray for God's spirit to fill him that he might live out what he preaches. Because to attempt to preach and not practice is unattainable. So to preach and not practice is unacceptable. And to attempt either without prayer is unattainable. You cannot Preach the word of God with power, and you cannot live it out in your life without God's spirit helping you. So to attempt either of these things is folly without being a man of prayer who calls upon God's spirit to enable him. Because it is not the pastor's ability or the pastor's wisdom that's going to save people. It's the spirit of God blessing the word of God. And a pastor cannot think that he can model Christianity without the spirit's aid. So that's why prayer is essential. And again, I think prayer, and there's many more things we could say, obviously, a pastor needs to be converted, all these things, but this is the foundation of what it is to be a pastor. And and the writer of the confession saw prayer as being essential. So I have to leave that there for now and move on to the second part. So that's the foundation. That's the fundamental role of the pastor. Much more could be said. We will have some time afterwards for interaction if there's any input questions, comments, but that's the fundamental roles I see in Scripture. Teaching, 
example, and prayer. And again, teaching is that foundation, and prayer and example serve as serve to support that role. Now, let's move on to apply this doctrine. I want us to consider a couple of questions based on this. All right. Number one, why have pastors? All right. This is their role, but why do we need them? Number two, why pay pastors? And number three, what about the authority of pastors? All right. If you remember my message from Matthew 23:8, I'm a Reformed Baptist, a Congregationalist. I'm very um, hesitant to ascribe authority to uh, a religious leader based on Jesus' words, so we'll address that briefly. Let's begin by asking, though, why are there pastors? Why do we have this category of pastor? And I want to look at the short answer and then expand a bit. And Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives the reasons, the reason for pastors. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and those words go together, the pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And that text goes on, I didn't cite it, but to talk about in order that we may reach maturity. The reason for pastors is to equip the saints, to build them up, to help them reach maturity. All of them. Now, this is the most essential reason, right? To benefit the saints. The pastor is one whose labor in the word brings benefit and edification to the saints. Now let's address an objection to this, okay? The objection is this. Since we're all called to exhort one another and edify one another, why do we need someone in the office of pastor to do that? And as I said, I am a firm believer in the priesthood of all believers and the importance of the church holding even pastors accountable, which is why I'm a Reformed Baptist and a Congregationalist. The church has authority as it relates to membership, and even as it relates to who is their pastor. Now, we address that concept in Matthew 23, 8. And I will address it again, not today, but if I have a chance to speak on church polity, on the role of the church and the members of the church as those that are to govern the church, not to be governed by one man. The pastor is not a tyrant that simply makes decisions for the church. We saw that in 1 Peter 5, right? He sets the example. He doesn't lord it over the people. So we don't need a pastor. Christians don't need a pastor because they're unable to study the Bible on their own, unable to think for themselves, or unable to govern the church as a congregational body. That's not why God gave pastors. The reason God gave pastors is so that the saints might be edified and equipped, built up and strengthened, challenged and exhorted. It is so that we might have the whole counsel of God set before us week after week after week, by a man given to the task of studying and preaching. Now, Paul told Timothy, he said, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. And in our text, right, he told Timothy as well, he said, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them. You see, the pastor is to be the subject matter expert in teaching or handling the word of truth. He is to be given to the study, application, demonstration, and public proclamation of the word of God. That doesn't make him better than someone else. It simply means this is what he is called to and what he is gifted at. Paul tells Timothy, immerse yourself in these things. Let me give an example to illustrate this. Let's look at a different vocation. Let's look at a doctor. All right? 
we've been working with doctors a lot of, you know we've been doc interacting with doctors i know other families have so i think we can relate to this now why do we have doctors now here's the service that's provided by a doctor i believe it's that these people if they're good doctors they've immersed themselves in their calling right they've immersed themselves in the study of medicine it doesn't make them better nor does it mean they're always right Nevertheless, a good doctor is one who's devoted to the study of medicine. He's immersed himself in medicine, reading the text, researching new treatments, gaining experience in clinics, interacting with other doctors, honing his skills. He's devoted to the field. A good doctor loves medicine. I don't mean pills. I mean the field of medicine. He loves that field. He enjoys his trade, and he's called to do it. Now, I've been to visit doctors, and they just have, it seems they have no passion for their trade. And it's discouraging and it makes me feel like they haven't put much effort into my situation either. And it's like talking with pastors and I've talked to a few who have no inner calling and passion for studying, preaching and discussing the word of God. I find myself scratching my head. Why are you a pastor if you don't have an inner burning for teaching and applying and discussing the word of God? Did you do it out of a sense of obligation for money? Why? It's the same way with a doctor who's not interested in making further progress in his field. He's doing his vocation out of duty, maybe for money, but not for the love of his field. Now, a doctor, a good doctor, right, has some authority in his field, doesn't he? He knows what he's talking about. Do you accept it blindly? No. I hope not. A lot of people do today, right? Well, the doctor said it. I have to do it. That would be the wrong approach. Even the advice from the best doctor must be analyzed by the patient. For it is the patient that must decide if what the doctor says is a good route to take. Look, everyone should care about their health. Everyone should know about staying healthy and what their bodies need because we need to care for them. But yet we don't get discount doctors because we make the final decisions. And so just because Christians are required to watch their own souls and study the Bible for themselves, it does not mean the office of pastor is not necessary. The point is this. Every Christian is called to study the Bible, apply the Bible, and even teach the Bible in certain contexts. Fathers are to teach their families. Mothers are to teach their children. We can think of evangelism and discipleship, someone you're interacting with that wants to learn more about Christ. We're all called to do that. And every Christian is to set a good example. Is every Christian has people looking to them. Again, fathers has their whole, have their whole families looking to them. Mothers, their children, and of course other people in our lives, co-workers or other people we interact with, are looking to us. We claim the name of Christ. They're looking at us and considering our example. But not every Christian is called to the office of pastor. Why? Why not? Because not every Christian is called to be immersed in the study and proclamation of the word of God. Look, I'm called to take care of my, my body and my health, but I'm not called to be a doctor. I have no passion for that field. But when it comes to my own health, I'm going to take it seriously and consider what this doctor's saying. Now, one of the reasons I believe that the example of pastors specifically is so important is this. It is simply natural for new converts especially to look up to those preaching the word. It's unavoidable. It's not that other Christians have a lower expectation on them for holy living in God's sight. It is simply that new Christians are going to naturally expect the teacher of the Bible to live out the Bible. And it's kind of like this. Let's say Bobby's going to be a personal trainer, 
and I'm going to go to him because I want to benefit from his knowledge and wisdom. And let's say someone else who is overweight and out of shape comes to Bobby too because they see Bobby as having wisdom. He's been in this field. He's an expert in it. Now, let's say Bobby gives up on his exercise and becomes a couch potato, playing video games, eating Doritos, gets overweight and obese. Who's going to be more discouraged by his example? I'll be discouraged a little bit, but the person that came to Bobby looking for advice and insight to help get in shape has been working hard for six months and now sees Bobby at the video game store overweight. That person's going to, you know what? If Bobby can't do it, how's there hope for me? Now, I might, be, I might be discouraged, but that's not going to derail me from my fitness goals. Now, in the same way, a mature Christian can handle the bad example of a pastor better than a new Christian. And so I don't, I, but the, the example is so important because that new convert, those new Christians are looking to the pastor. It's just natural. And I don't know if I can think of anything that has been more devastating to weak, immature Christians, right? These are Christians that are newly converted. They don't have their spiritual fitness down yet. There's nothing more devastating to them than a Christian leader that fails to walk in holiness but falls into immorality and sin. That's why the example is one of the reasons the example is so important. We are to be about spreading the gospel and convert and, and seeing new people be converted. And mature Christians can handle, they have they at least have a framework to understand. You know, this man may not have been converted. In the ministry, but a new Christian, it can be devastating to them to see the pastor who taught them the word of God go and live for the world and Satan. So we have pastors in order to equip the Christians, equip Christians to serve the Lord and fulfill the Great Commission. Pastors provide the service of ministering the word of God to the flock. It's a service that's provided. So that's why we have them. That's why they're there. It's for the benefit of the people. Not to control them, not to to protect their decision-making. It's to provide the service of delivering the word of God to the people. And we'll get into the authority, just like a good doctor. It doesn't mean that whatever they say goes. And number two, why pay pastors? Listen, since a pastor is to be immersed in scripture, teaching and exhortation, he is to be bringing valuable content when he teaches and preaches. The reason you pay a doctor... Think about it. You pay the doctors not just for that service. What does what is your money going to? You pay the doctor so that he can be immersed in his trade, right? You could pay me. You could come to me and pay me to give you advice on your health. I don't know why you'd want to because I haven't immersed myself in that field. The doctor is immersed in it, and so you, you, the money goes to the doctor. Look, there's. It's not that other people couldn't be doctors, right? I believe you know if you put your, if you set your mind to it, you probably could theoretically. But many don't want to be immersed in that field. I could probably study and pass the test, but I couldn't do that long term because I have no desire to be in the medical field. And just the same way, everyone is to know and obey the scriptures, but the pastor is to be immersed in this. Then, when that pastor comes to teach and preach, there's a different product being presented. This is why the work of a pastor may be regarded as laboring. Laboring, right? Scripture says this, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. It's not a charitable offering that is given to pastors. And sometimes it may seem that way because they don't seem to be laboring in the word, but it is to be a wage of a laborer. A good doctor, a good doctor 
is happy to provide his services free when he can, right? If there's a good doctor and there's someone who needs his services, he's happy to provide them for free. But the doctor could not survive nor devote his time to progressing in his trade if he's not paid most of the time for his services. In the same way, a pastor, a a good pastor, a pastor called to that, loves preaching and teaching, and he's happy to do it without compensation. But he cannot devote his time to it or progress in it if he's not compensated for his efforts. This is why the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that's why pastors are paid, not because of their authority or because they're better, but simply that they might be devoted to their trade. They are immersing themselves in that trade in order to provide the service of preaching the word of God, just as a doctor immerses himself in the medical field to provide the service of counsel and advice as it relates to medicine. Number three, and the final thing here, what about the authority of the pastor? What about the authority of the pastor? I simply want to say this, wrapping up. We have to start at the foundation of the office, and I believe we've done that today. We've laid the foundation. The core of the office is teaching, setting an example, and prayer. Teaching, example, and prayer. Then I believe whatever authority the office of pastor is to have is going to be derived from these three things. The greatest authority that a pastor has, the greatest authority that a pastor has is in proclaiming the word of God. Now Jesus, who of course has all authority, complete authority, he amazed his hearers when he taught with authority. Matthew 7, 29. He said, this man teaches with authority. When a pastor rightly handles the word of truth, he too teaches with authority. When a believer, any believer has that authority of the scripture. That's why ultimately the Reformed Baptists believe that the church as a whole is the one that is to select their elders and hold them accountable because the ultimate authority is not derived from the position but from the word of God. But when a pastor handles the word of God and preaches it, he does, and he does so correctly, he preaches with authority. This is why Paul told Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now comparing this to 1 Peter 5 and other passages... We cannot conclude that Titus simply had the authority to rebuke anyone for anything for any reason. Rather, Titus's authority rested in his faithful proclamation of sound doctrine found in the word of God. The authority of the pastor is in his faithful proclamation and application of the authoritative word of God. Let me say that again. The authority of the pastor is in his faithful proclamation and application of the authoritative word of God. That's where the authority of the pastor lies. John Hammond says it is primarily by means of his preaching and teaching that the elder exerts the influence of leadership in the congregation. Now, it is a very sad reality today that many pastors have traded this authority for a pretended authority that lords it over the people. Now, we can address more of that subject another time as we discuss church polity, but suffice it to say that it makes perfect sense from the scripture that if a pastor is to have authority and if a pastor's main role is teaching, then his authority will be an aspect of that preaching and teaching. Now, in conclusion, everything God gives to his people is for their good. Every single thing God ordains, every single law, every single command, every single institution, whether it be the the family, the church or the state is given for our good. Now, it can be abused, but that doesn't negate the goodness 
in it. That's why God gave it. Everything God gives is for the good of his people. Now, the office of pastor, though prone to be abused, as with any other good gift, must not be neglected. And a man seeking the office of pastor desires a good thing, but let him consider what the office is. Let him consider if he is called to preach, if he is to be given to the study of scriptures. And let those men called to the office of pastor keep a close watch on their lives and their teaching. For in so doing, they will save both themselves and their hearers. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the instruction in your word as it relates to the church, as it relates to the office of pastor. We thank you, Lord, that you've given this office in order that men might be called to preach and teach your word, to labor in your word, to be immersed in it, to be diligent, to show themselves approved. They would be able to come and deliver your word up for your saints to consider and wrestle and discuss and chew upon that we might grow in, edif- in, in maturity, that we might be edified. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up more preachers of your word to be faithful to your word and proclaim your word. There would be strong churches where men and women would, would look to the word and hold one another and pastors accountable to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this word now to us Strengthen us and edify us as we look to our own lives and to our own teaching, whatever sphere that is, that we will be faithful to live out our Christian faith before the world and before one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.